0: Hi, this is Azimuth World Foundation's podcast, Connecting the Dots. With the help of our guests, we will be connecting the dots between matters of access to public health and safe water, and the balance between humankind and nature among indigenous and rural communities.
1: Here we are for a new episode of Connecting the Dots. I'm Mariana March, Azimuth World Foundation Executive Director. In this episode, our guest will help us understand how vital the role of youth, and more importantly, Indigenous youth, is in reconciling humankind and nature. Centuries so ago, the idea that man is somehow a part above nature began to form in the Western world. We were here to conquer nature and extract whatever we found necessary from her. And now, here we are, faced with the catastrophic scenery of climate change and irreparable biodiversity loss. Of course, nature does not depend on us, on our well being. The planet will go on long after we disappear, but we do have a role in how much we destroy the planet's biodiversity and make it impossible for not just our species, but other species to survive and thrive. Yet, one of the defining traits of the many different indigenous communities worldwide is in general, we believe that humans are a strand in the web of life and nature. Part of the world and dependent upon it. And this makes all the difference. Our culture defines our relationship with nature. But how can we galvanize this culture shift in the Western world? Josefa Keringo Tawui is an Indigenous Igorite Igoro. She represents Indigenous and local youth on the steering committee of the Global Youth Biodiversity Network as policy coordinator. Josefa is also a graduate student focusing on biocultural diversity conservation in her home regions, the Cordillera in the Philippines. She's a young indigenous woman scientist. Her contributions to our understanding of the social, cultural, ecological problem are invaluable. So we are very grateful to have her with us today. Josefa, thank you very much for being here today to help us to connect the dots. Um, Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Uh, you stated that one of the biggest differences, the Global Biodiversity Framework, known as the GBF, can make for biodiversity loss is to be clear and loud about how crucial it is to ensure justice and address inequalities. How are these aspects interconnected? So
0: I think many of us are familiar with some of the more direct drivers of biodiversity loss that are often mentioned, things like land use change, things like climate change, pollution, Invasive species, things like this. Mm-hmm. Um, in in the Global Youth Biodiversity Network, we do a lot of capacity building, and one of the exercises that we like to do is a systems thinking exercise. So we took a look, we take a look at um these kind of surface level drivers, and then we start to ask why. You know, why mm-hmm. is there land use change? Maybe their answer is the need for for like infrastructure. Why, is there, why do we need infrastructure? And maybe their answer is the desire for development, for example. And why do we want development? And mm-hmm. Their answer might yes. be that their country might want to catch up in economic growth or want to keep their power. And you find like it's this mindset that, that the ultimate goal is money and power. <laughs> this is a huge driver of biodiversity mm-hmm. loss. Um, well, the point is that we try to ask why as many times as we can so that we can uncover what we refer to as the root causes of biodiversity loss. And what we find is that all of these are economic drivers, like weak governance, like income inequality, like unjust economies, for example. Mm-hmm. And so we start to ask, you know, who gains really and who loses when you exploit mm-hmm. nature, whose voices are heard and who's, who are not at the table. Um, are the ones who face the biggest impacts of biodiversity loss really able to decide and whose knowledge informs our plans to address biodiversity loss and who whose knowledge is marginalized and what are the results you know Um, Mm -hmm. unfortunately many people don't really want to confront these kinds of root causes for what they Mm -hmm. are um, and they prefer to kind of do the same things that haven't been working um, and do like Band-Aid solutions, only addressing the symptoms, but not really the root causes. Mm
1: -hmm. Josefa, what do you think needs to happen for traditional ecological knowledge uh, to be recognized as one of the solutions to motivating biodiversity loss?
0: Mm. So traditional ecological knowledge or indigenous and local knowledge, it's called by many names, but it's quite recognized already internationally right and by science um in some way uh, as an incredibly important body of knowledge um outside of western science that can inform us how to address biodiversity loss but i think you know what really needs to happen so that this knowledge um is applied or like seen for for its value even on the ground is that mm-hmm. we need to overcome um Discriminatory biases that exist against indigenous mm-hmm. peoples. Uh, many people see this knowledge as superstition. Still, like, and you know, even though these are have been tried and tested throughout generations on the ground, like on actual ecosystems. Um. So yeah, I, as long as we we see um, it it's really part of this, of seeing. Um, indigenous peoples as people, you know, which many people still don't do. Um, and also to try to avoid separating the knowledge that they hold from, from the land where it was developed and also from the people who hold that knowledge. I think
1: that kind of comes mm-hmm. it up. And uh, Josefa, uh, can you talk to us about, the, in, in particular, the challenge that the Indigenous uh, youth um, faces? indigenous youth
0: of course are facing challenges as indigenous peoples but also I as guess. young people but also as indigenous young people you know um in my region in my country um we are facing many of the indigenous uh, communities face um um political instability and like uh, of of their of their local governance or like they also face militarization so there's a lot of presence of military forces which is causing Mm -hmm. some um, fear and unrest you know Um, something I think faced by many indigenous youth all over the world is and also here is urban migration more and more we're having to move from our ancestral lands to cities um, for education for or for work these kinds of things because there's usually a lack of social services that are being provided to our communities you know um mm-hmm. we face a lot of discrimination still um uh and like uh because we're forced to go under um uh traditional eco- uh, educational systems or like rather um mainstream educational systems usually that means um we don't have access to culturally appropriate education. And Mm -hmm. this is causing the erosion of our knowledge and the erosion of our languages. Um, So really there are a lot of challenges. And I could Mm -hmm. even list many more, but this
1: is some of them. Mm -hmm. And uh, one thing that is being remarkable around the world and touching one of the points you said, you know, also has a youth, right? Uh, That is being, you know, this uh, calls around the world uh, from you and other young uh, uh, leaders and activists. But do you think in some way, and thinking now just about youth, do you think that this this climate crisis is turning young people in some way as a marginalized group? So, well, the climate
0: crisis impacts everyone, right? No matter Mm -hmm. who or where you are, but it doesn't impact everyone equally. and. um, young people are some of these are are one of these groups that really bear the impacts um, mm-hmm. disproportionately, along with like indigenous peoples, with women, mm-hmm. with persons with disabilities, for example, with refugees. Um, that said, I don't think that the climate crisis is turning young people into a marginalized group in terms of participation. On mm-hmm. the contrary, young people, you know, are more and more rising mm-hmm. up. <laughs> To be a force that is insisting that we should be listened to you know you can see Absolutely. this is the incredible
1: mm-hmm.
0: with the incredible number of young people who are striking for climate mm-hmm. like for climate action and climate justice and it's incredible the attention that you see now on the voices of young people um i hope you know this is a lot of um genuine mm-hmm. recognition for for our voices um mm-hmm. Um, and that we are being taken seriously, but I I know that there are also like still instances of tokenism happening where mm-hmm. we are seen like as decoration or that we it's good to have us there we're very inspiring that kind of thing but like we're not really being taken seriously that's also our, something that comes out of this increased visibility and attention
1: on youth. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think it was very important to hear uh, saying you know, that, and, and and to say you know the displacement that you just had, because you know, uh, unfortunately, sometimes people also you know it, it brings discomfort to some lobbyist groups, as we know. And thinking about we're talking about you know indigenous youth, youth, but how do you think that we can help advance indigenous female youth leadership? Hmm. So, yeah, this is one of those things,
0: like because I, I I myself am an indigenous mm-hmm. young woman. <laughs> um but like also there are just many other aspects of um of young people's identity that shapes who they are. um, it's not just indigeneity or their age or their mm-hmm. gender it's also like you know the level of education that they were able to get their religion these kinds of things like where do they live um and so with that i think to really um help young people who are marginalized uh, or part of like groups in vulnerable situations we need to have an intersectional understanding of mm-hmm. what their experiences are these many of these things really intersect they they shape Different young people in different way, so if we have that kind of like intersectional lens and intersectional understanding, then I think that can help us find the right um, mechanisms, the right ways to to lift um, these kinds of people up, um, mm-hmm. and try to bring them to the to the table, and yeah, enable them to speak their their minds.
1: Mm-hmm. And also, but, you know. Now shifting a little bit, you know, to work, uh, you know, being part of URBn, could you, uh, you know, share, you know, with us what are some of the biggest achievements of uh, your organization, and do you think they could they could only be attained through youth activism?
0: I think that maybe our one of our biggest achievements is nurturing youth activism itself. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we are. We, as the network, have been able to organize so many young people all around the world who are acting, you know, for our future um, and towards living in harmony with nature. Um, this is manifesting itself um online, on the ground, and also like in the decision-making spaces that we take part in, like the Convention on Biological Diversity. Um, for example, we've we've consulted so many young people um who, who are trying to Let us know what they think, what they prioritize, what needs to be done, Um, Mm -hmm. and we bring all of these voices to the international, national, regional fora that exist. So Mm -hmm. those are just some of. And uh, we've been
1: listening, you know, uh, quite recently. Again, you know, uh, some media outlets talking about the next COP, you know, uh, that. it will be held in the in the middle east and and so we you know and there's also already you know some some buzz also regarding that. and I would like to ask you, you know what are your expectations for that the next cop in terms of indigenous participation? Do you feel like in going back a little bit, to what you just said, do you feel like the COP meetings are actually including indigenous peoples in decision making, or are we still far from actual, you know, participation? So, I'm I'm more involved um,
0: in the biodiversity COP, so I'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. But I know, mm-hmm. for example, also I guess in the climate um, COP, indigenous. People's um, participation has grown over the years and has strengthened over the years. But this is because of indigenous peoples' struggle for that space. You know, mm-hmm. any genuine participation that we see is there because Indigenous peoples had struggled for it, had fought for it. Um, this includes um, you know, having voluntary funding for them to participate, having um mm, space at the mic having being able to um uh, deliver statements these kinds of things that said there are still a lot of challenges I think um in many cases uh mm-hmm. like <laughs> just a very practical one like with visas it's so difficult to actually get to where these things are happening um there it's difficult to find funding it's difficult to, um, there's there's a language barrier that happens all the time. You know mm-hmm. these kinds of things uh, still need to be addressed so that we can reach you know the the optimal um, way for indigenous mm-hmm. peoples to participate because it's actually really really important that we are there and that we're able to fully and effectively and meaningfully participate mm-hmm. in these kinds of processes.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, you know, to be participative in the decision making—that's one of the most important uh, aspects, also, uh, of the, of these meetings. And the, you know, I, I think the decision making should always be inclusive, especially if we're talking about indigenous peoples in their territories. So, mm-hmm. you know, Josefa, in the can you tell us how your upbringing, upbringing as part of an indigenous community in the Philippines shaped your perspective on biodiversity and conservation policies?
0: I'm a young indigenous person who grew up as the daughter of indigenous activists. For but um, I also grew up in the city. You know, <laughs> uh, I. I've loved nature like for as long as I remember. I think I didn't really realize how these two things of my identity were connected until mm-hmm. later, right? Um, and uh, yeah, eventually, I I realized that my my identity as an indigenous person really, really is important to to um, conserving biodiversity, mm-hmm. which I really always wanted to do. It does guide me throughout my my advocacy work. You know, I always try to be grounded in um, indigenous values, like valuing the land, um, making sure that it's um, taken care of so that we can pass it on to the next generation and the next generation. Um, and these are values that I think actually everyone should be guided by, um, as we as we kind of try to address the crises that we're facing. Yeah, your
1: career, you know, uh, you know, has been remarkable for such a, a, a young, uh, you know, uh, person, and, uh, and perhaps it will be interesting for our audience also as well to, you know, to know more about your work in conservation, international Indigenous Leader Conservation Fellowship, and has a co share of youth for territories of life. You know, the the Global I C C A Consortium Youth Group. If you could share, you know, a little bit of, of the work that you're doing
0: and, and, and some of your the accomplishments, uh, we would love to hear. Yeah, um, so the ICC Consortium is another organization I'm a part of. It's it's um a global association of um organizations who um recognize that um indigenous peoples and local communities have territories of life you know, territories that they conserve um, that are um, serving as um, places for 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 life, you know, not, not mm-hmm. just for biodiversity, but also, like, for cultural diversity, these kinds of things. And so the ICC Consortium works to sustain these territories, defend them, and um, document them, these kinds of things. And it's, yeah, I, I really believe in, this as a big part of um, biodiversity addressing biodiversity loss. Um, and as for being a fellow for um, under uh, the Indigenous Fellowship of Conservation International, I mm-hmm. do think it's important to have these kinds of opportunities that are targeted towards indigenous peoples and um, mm-hmm. enabling indigenous peoples to to innovate and find solutions to the problems that they face. So um, yeah, my fellowship ended in in 2018, but it's still something that has been a big part of, yeah, just getting me where I am today. These kinds of targeted, um, specific um, opportunities, resources um, for for indigenous peoples, I think are um, a great initiative.
1: Well, it, thank you so much for talking with us today. you know, your award, really demonstrates how protecting our planet's biodiversity can and must go hand-in-hand with defending the human rights of indigenous peoples and local communities. And we've also wanted to ally in showing how these communities have been our planet's greatest stewards. Now we must stop all the disenfranchising they have endured. Um, You know, the the balanced relationship with nature is something we, you know, uh, Westerners need to emulate and not hinder. So the fact that you have done such remarkable work in advancing this cause at such a young age is, is really inspiring. And uh, is there anything you, that you want to share before we wrap this up?
0: Uh, thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. Um, it it was a pleasure to to be able to speak to you and to to talk about some of these issues that are just so 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 important to, you know, the world's current biggest challenges. Um, and yeah, Uh, I think uh, this was a great conversation. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Connecting the Dots, an Azimuth World Foundation podcast. Join the conversation on our website, azimuthworldfoundation.org, or by following us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn.